Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number five of the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class. Hi, how are you? Good to be back again this week, and uh, <clears throat> I am excited to uh, to move forward. I'm hoping to get as far as a discussion of the uh, attempt to cure the uh, King's Madness, uh, which is one of my favorite scenes from the book. So, um, that's my that's my my ambition here tonight. But before we start, as always, I wanted to just do some quick announcements to make sure you guys know what is going on. The main thing that I wanted to emphasize, of course, as I've been saying, we're in the middle of our fundraising campaign uh, this year, which has been going really, really well. I'm very grateful for all the generous gifts that we have received. Um, wanted to let you know about the, or to remind you rather, because I've mentioned it before about the uh, the upcoming special event we're doing next week, which is next Thursday night. At 7 o'clock. I'm now having a sudden panic as to whether it's 7 or 7.30. I think it's 7 o'clock next Thursday night. Um, I'm doing a special session. This is going to be a special uh, Mythgard Academy session. Um, as I believe I've mentioned, uh, the uh, you know during the fundraising campaign, each week we've been sort of spotlighting a different... Um, one of the the programs, the free programs, uh, that the uh, Mythgard Institute sponsors... Um, and uh, next week is the week in which we want to focus on this program, on the Mythgard Academy, uh, in which, of course, as you know, we have been electing books over the course of the last two years and going through and, and, and discussing them in detail together. Uh, so what I'm doing for a special event for the Mythgard Academy is a, a sort of a, a, a brief one-night, sort of one-shot class. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about, we're going to do one, we're going to do two, one next week and then one during our uh, webathon at the end on Halloween Day. And so we're going to do one fantasy, one Tolkien one, and one um, science fiction one. And so the science fiction thing that I elected to do is an episode of Doctor Who. So we're going to do an episode of the new Doctor Who uh, next Thursday night. And the episode I have decided on is the episode that is called Blink. It is, and Kat will remind me if, will correct me if I'm wrong, episode 11 of season 3 of the new, um, of the new Doctor Who. For those of you who have Netflix, it's very easy to find uh, on Netflix. And that's how I've watched it. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so it's, the episode is called Blink. That's the one we're going to be talking about. So if you want to do your homework before next Thursday's session, it is season three. Okay, thanks, Noam. I thought I was pretty sure it was. Um, if you want to do your homework, you need to you need to watch and review that episode uh, so that we'll be ready to talk about it. Now, if you've never seen Doctor Who before, it's okay. One of the reasons I've chosen that episode is that it's very sort of self-contained. You don't need to know very much about Doctor Who. You certainly don't need to know anything about the sort of whole overarching um, storyline of the series. So, uh, um, just to, th there might be something, some elements that need explaining, like what the TARDIS is and that kind of thing. If you're completely ignorant of Doctor Who, uh, as I was up until a very short time ago. Um, but, uh, but anyway, it, it is a very self-contained episode. It can easily be watched all by itself. So that's, that's why I picked that one, though. There are many other episodes that I would have really liked to talk about, but I didn't want to have to get into the whole trajectory of things. So we're not talking about those. So anyway, it's, it's number 10. Oh, if I don't count the Christmas specials. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Kat. My, my numbering is purely based on like what it says in, on Netflix. Like that's just absolutely, uh, that said, so I think it had a number 11, but because I think it counted the Christmas, uh, special as number one of that season. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, anyway, so yes, 
10-ish, maybe 11, depending on where you look. Um, uh, it's uh, it's for... Uh, and Donna, I agree. It's a great episode for Halloween month. It's a very... Uh, it's a very spooky uh, uh, sort of fun Halloween episode. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, no, that'll be very cool. All right, so uh, so so prepare for that. So again, next week, um, next thir- so it'll be next. So we're gonna have we're gonna have our Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class as usual. That will sort of carry on uninterrupted all the way through. Um, we will uh, so so I'll remind you again next Wednesday, but just so that you can start preparing if, if you have access to uh, to Netflix or can find uh, the Doctor Who episode, make sure to go through and check out the episode blink, and we'll talk about it next Thursday night. So that's it, I think, for now. And let's go on and talk about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I'm I'm kind of proud about the fact that I haven't gotten hugely, enormously behind. Uh, I mean, as some of you will know, often by this time uh, in a class, by week five, I'm like a full reading behind, (laughs) and I'm not yet. There's still some things that I want to go back and touch on from last week's reading, but really still the majority of the passages we're going to talk about today are from today's reading, and darn it, that's pretty good for me. I'm I'm, 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 I'm not going to lie. Kind of proud about it. Um, so let's uh, let's let's carry on. I want to stay at Gnome says famous last words. Um, okay, all right, yeah, uh, great. All right, I want to start today talking. Well, let me give you sort of my trage- my 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 putative my uh, my 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 optimistic uh, trajectory for today. I want to start off talking about the King's Book. Um, that chapter, I think, is. Um, is it, it's sort of interesting how that chapter about Childermas's research into Vinculus's book and how he tells the story of the King's Book um, and uh, the uh, sort of the horrifying destruction of the King's Book by Clegg. Um, I want to, you know, and, and it, that's sort of inserted in the middle of the story of Jonathan Strange in the Peninsula. Um, and I think that that by itself is actually really kind of an interesting juxtaposition. And when we come back around to talking about Jonathan Strange and his time in the Peninsula, I hope that we'll remember to think about that. You know, what is the effect, in fact, of interposing that chapter into the middle of Jonathan Strange's experience? I mean, of course, on the one hand, it has the effect of enabling us not to totally forget about the existence of Mr. Norrell as we spend so much time away with Jonathan Strange, but but, but I think there's more to it than merely the utility of uh, keeping our attention, a portion of our attention, fixed on Mr. Norrell. Um... However, so I mean, but I do want to kind of draw that out because I, I want to turn, you know, sort of after that to look at uh, to look at Jonathan Strange himself. So first, we're going to talk about um, the King's Book, you know, sort of that whole incident. Um, then I want to I want to go back a little bit and look at the where we leave Mister Norrell before Jonathan Strange heads to the peninsula. Um, so again, here I want to look at because I want to come back to, after we talk about the King's Book. I want to talk about sort of the status of Mr. Norrell, our understanding of Mr. Norrell, and the public appreciation of Mr. Norrell, and really kind of what is the what is the sort of relationship between those things, um, and what is, you know, sort of the, the, our understanding of his relationship with English magic. Then I want to turn to Jonathan Strange in the war. I want to look at the... Uh, 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 I want to look at uh, um, Lord Wellington and... Um, and uh, look at Jonathan Strange doing magic. I find it fascinating that we see Jonathan Strange do magic a lot, 
quite. I mean, we almost never actually catch Mr. Norrell performing a spell. I mean, we hear about it, we know that he does do it, but he almost never does it on stage, as it were. It's never described. Um, but with Jonathan Strange, it is. And so I want to look at some of those instances. Um, both the first piece of magic that we see him do, the one that he shows Mr. Norrell, and then the very controversial piece of magic that he does, the thing which some are questioning whether or not it counts as black magic, and that is, of course, his raising of the 17 dead Neapolitans. Then after we do that, I want to segue from that to looking at the uh, Jonathan Strange's attempt to cure the king's madness. Um, and uh, if we have time still at the end of that, I want to come back and look at uh, what we learn about the gentleman with the thistle-down hair during today's episode. So, that is my frankly ambitious plan for the evening just so that you know where we're headed um so let's um so let's let's do that so okay start with the king's book all right um lascelles speaking to childermas do you believe that this was the king's book lascelles asked childermas that is there you remember they're talking about the story that childermas is relating childermas shrugged Finhelm certainly believed it. In Richmond, I discovered two old people who had been servants in Finhelm's home in their youth. They said that the king's book was the pride of his existence. He was guardian of the book first, and all else, husband, parent, farmer, second. Tildermas paused. The greatest glory and the greatest burden given to any man in this age, he mused. Finhelm seems to have been a theoretical magician himself in a small way. He bought books about magic, and paid a magician in Northallerton to teach him. But one thing struck me as very curious. Both these old servants insisted that Findhelm never read the king's book, and had only the vaguest notion of what it contained. Ah! exclaimed Mr. Norrell softly. Lascelles and Childermas looked at him. So he could not read it, said Mr. Norrell. Well, that is very... He fell silent and began to chew on his fingernails. I'm skipping the bit where Childermas and Lascelles start wrangling with each other while uh, Drawlight is polishing his snuffbox. The quarrel was becoming heated when they were both suddenly silenced by Mr. Norrell, saying slowly and thoughtfully, When the Raven King first came into England, he could not read and write. Few people could in those days, even kings. And the Raven King had been brought up in a fairy house where there was no writing. He had never even seen writing before. His new human servants showed it to him and explained its purpose. But he was a very he was a young man then, a very young man, perhaps no more than fourteen or fifteen years of age. He had already conquered kingdoms in two different worlds, and had all the magic a magician could desire. He was full of arrogance and pride. He had no wish to read other men's thoughts. What were other men's thoughts compared to his own? So he refused to learn to read and write Latin, which was what the servants wanted, and instead he invented a writing of his own to preserve his thoughts for later times. Presumably this writing mirrored the workings of his own mind more closely than Latin could have done. That was at the very beginning, but the longer he remained in England, the more he changed, becoming less silent, less solitary, less like a fairy and more like a man. Eventually he consented to learn to read and write as other men did, but he did not forget his own writing, the king's letters, as it is called, and he taught it to certain favored magicians so that they might understand his magic more perfectly. Martin Pale mentions the king's letters, and so does Belisus, but neither of them had ever seen so much as a single pen stroke of it. If a piece of it has survived, and in the king's own hand, then certainly, 
Mr. Norrell fell silent again. Okay. Yes, John Milleen points out very correctly that this explains the, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair's disdain for books earlier. Remember when Mr. Norrell said that he learned his magic not from a, a master, right? He had no master, but he learned it from books, and the gentleman is like, from books, right? Um, yes, fairies don't do writing. Um, and uh, and yes, of course, as, uh, as a couple of you have noticed, Childermas, at the beginning of the quotation here, um, sorry, um, is quoting Vinculus when he says the greatest glory and the greatest burden given to any man in this age, right? Um, th- that's a pretty plain cue to us, right? We can see, we, we can plainly follow Childermas's thinking. Um, he is obviously very convinced that the book that Vinculus is talking about, what he characterized, that he, uh, remember he says that it's in his custody, right? Um, that having custody of this of the, the the book of which he has custody, Vincius describes as the greatest glory and greatest burden given to any man in this age. And of course, Childermas notes the similarity between that and the way uh, that uh, that Robert Finhelm seemed to uh, seemed to think about uh, the king's book. So, um, okay, so so this that certainly seems. I mean, I think we can agree with Childermas that that does certainly seem to be. Um, uh, very plausible, very suggestive, right? Um, and it begins to help us understand. Remember, Vinculus claimed. So is, let's not forget the sort of chain of events, right? Sort of the sequence of things as we have been discovering them to this point, right? Remember, we first meet Vinculus when he sort of sneaks into Mr. Norrell's house and bursts into Mr. Norrell's sitting room and declares his prophecy, right? His prophetic words, which he says uh, is, the, is a prophecy of the Raven King, a, a message of the Raven King. Mr. Norrell, although he is at first taken aback, and we have that initial impulse, even by Mr. Norrell, um, to in a sense to credit what Vinculus is saying, because he um, uh, because he he recognizes that the, you know, remember I talked about this about how, like the, you know, his first shot Vinculus's first shot strikes home. So we get that initial impression, hey, maybe there's something to this, that the, th- the first thing that he does say to him does in fact resonate with what Mr. Norrell feels in his heart, but nobody else knew that, right? So, so we have this sense of that there's some, prob- possibly something to Vinculus, but then Mr. Norrell dismisses it, right? Everybody does prophecies by the Raven King. This is just cliche, nonsense, charlatanism, right? Childermas follows up, goes to meet him, and this and is where he finds, we find out that he got his prophecy, the prophecy that he delivered from a book. He didn't make it up, he didn't learn it from somebody else, he got it from a book. So we see the parallel with Mr. Norris, right? Who is your master? He didn't have a master, he got it from a book, right? Which is interesting by itself, right? So, um, okay, so, so he got this from a book, and now and we only get those vague hints about the book, right? He doesn't have the book, but it's in his custody. And, you know, we talked about the, the sort of the, the riddling nature of Vinculus's words there. And he called it the greatest glory and the greatest burden given to any man in this age. So he says, like, this book is a really big deal. The primary big deal that we know of it, the way that we're sort of coached to think about Vinculus's book, is essentially from Mr. Norrell's point of view, right? To Mr. Norrell, Vinculus's book is a big deal because it's a book of magic he doesn't have, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, 
there is an element of of that whole dynamic at the beginning there where it just sort of seems like the collector who you know the the miser collector who finds that somebody else has one of the things that he collects and he thought he had the complete set and now he discovers he does not have the complete set and he cannot bear the fact that this other thing is out there and so he seeks to get it so it seems the fact that he is so desirous he mr norrell is so desirous to locate and acquire Vinculus's book doesn't seem to be anything there doesn't seem to be much more resting on it than that, than the fact that Mr. Norrell wants to complete his collection and just can't bear the idea that somebody else out there has a book of magic that he he doesn't have and he hasn't read. And you will remember how smug Vinculus is about that, right? He shall never see it. He shall shall never even um, uh, 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 glance at it, right? Not only will Mr. Norrell never own it, he will never even see this book, says Vinculus. But again... It's not until this moment here and this connection that Childermas is making um, that we begin to see the book that Vinculus has is possibly important for more than just... It's, it's not just a collector wanting the last piece of his collection. This book is actually, potentially, order, an order of magnitude more significant. This is the king's book it is str- it is a book written by the raven king in the raven king's own private language um and uh that puts the whole thing on a new level right on the one hand remember it goes directly back to the initial question if we believe vinculus which we now have much more reason to do right um, remember, Vinculus said that the prophecy that he delivered uh, to Mr. Norrell was a message from the Raven King. Sounded like charlatanism at the time, um, but he says he got it from this book. If it turns out that this book was, in fact, the King's book written in the King's letters, okay. So it actually was from the Raven King. Um, and again, Mr. Norrell says everybody does this. Every charlatan in every street corner claims to have a message from the Raven King it seems that perhaps, at least, Vinculus actually does a direct message from the Raven King um, in the language, you know, a re- transmitted through the language which most perfectly transmitted the the thought and the magic of the Raven King. Um, now, Vinculus himself and his prophecy now suddenly has enormously higher standing than it did before, obviously, right? Um, so, I mean, one thing that I just I find really interesting is the way in which the revelations, as they happen, retroactively change the way we see those things. Remember, we had these hints before, the connections between Vinculus and the Raven King. Remember the cards, right? And, you know, the Raven King cards that kept coming through Mr. Norrell's past, present, and future. Um, so we saw pretty clear hints of this before, but now we're having more evidence than ever um, to back this up. But the thing that I would emphasize, this is a book. Again, think about that parallel. Mr. Norrell, learning magic from all of his books. Vinculus, learning magic, not exactly magic, not exactly the, the practice of magic, but anyway, deriving this prophecy from the book, the Raven King's book. Um, and... And again, I come back to the concept of English magic. 
the Raven King is the one who is really identified with English magic. That's one of the things which seems to me more and more clear. Something that's really coming out to me much more, at least that's what I'm thinking going through the book a second time, that when we talk about English magic, certainly when we talk about traditional English magic, we're talking about the magic of the Raven King. Remember when Mr. Strange was being asked um, when he was first deciding to be a magician? Remember which what sort of magic he would do? Right, The new sort, Mr. Norrell's sort, or the, or the old-fashioned kind? Right, the old-fashioned kind of English magic is clearly the magic of the Raven King. Um, so here we have the book of English magic, written by the Raven King in the King's own letters. That is the book of English magic, which suggests, by contrast, Mister Norrell's magic is not English magic. Right, not pure English magic, not true English magic. That's where we get the distinction between the old-fashioned kind of English magic and the new kind of modern magic that Mr. Norrell, of course, is the chief proponent of. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good, yeah, Nick Marazzo points out that the fact that the book is written in the king's letters leads Norrell to pause or hesitate more than once and bite his fingernails. Um, I took this as Norrell possibly confirming something he might have heard before. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, he doesn't... Nick, I take this as sort of his hesitancy. I mean, notice his first reaction is, ah, right? When, as soon as he hears that Richard Findhelm couldn't read the book, he immediately is like, oh, no, it could Was it written in the King's letters? Right? He's heard about the King's letters. He's read about them. Right? You know, he mentions how Martin, both Martin Pale and Bellasis both talk about the King's letters. But they, they never saw it, right? But they know about it. So he's heard rumors about it, which it seems quite likely he didn't even know whether they were true, whether it really existed, right? But he immediately thinks of it. Oh, oh the King's letters? No way. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to go there, right? Because you see what this suggests. Not only that those rumors of the Raven King's language and is true, but the book that's out the, again, he's recognizing now the magnitude of Vincuous's book. Before it was, I won't say it, idle curiosity, uh, Mr. Norrell's desire to get the book was far more than idle, um, but, um, but it wasn't all that urgent. Now, he must have that book. That book is beyond unique, right? I mean, it is... Childermas states the thing which, the conclusion which Mr. Norrell seems so hesitant actually to voice, right? And that is, uh, you know, and I didn't give the, um, the pa- so much of this passage that I wanted to quote, and I couldn't quote the whole thing, but when Childermas says that the, the book is so important that if it were found, the entire history of English magic would have to be reinterpreted in light of what this book says. And Mr. Lascelles is like, Really? And remember, Chill and Mr. Norrell agrees that that's probably true, right? It's an astonishing uh, conclusion, which he clearly doesn't want to come to. And why? Why not? Because he resists. Remember, he's anti-Raven King. What we see, and and, and here I think one of the things that we can get from this scene is sort of the clarification of of of, of the lines, right? Um, one of the things that I've been interested in, in looking at from the beginning has been, what is Norrell doing? 
right? What exactly is makes Mr. Norrell tick? What exactly is his motivation? You know, want to resist just sort of pigeonholing him or, or sort of stereotyping him and, and really try to understand. On the one hand, he has a great reverence for the books, right? For the, for, for the writings of the Oriat magicians. He has great respect for the Raven King, though, of course, as he points out to Lascelles in this scene, it does not decrease his hatred for the man, right? He despises the magic of the Raven King. He respects it, but he despises it. Um, and it becomes clear. Remember, what is his number one goal? Why does Mr. Norrell want all the books for himself? Of course, it's not just one reason, but why? Why does Mr. Norrell want to collect all the books? Yeah, exactly. It's not just so that he can have access to everything, right? Of course, he wants to read all the books. That's one motivation. But it's not just that. He wants to... Yeah, uh, Kate, that's a really great phrase in Kate. Um, uh, both Kay and Kate have different metaphors, both of which I think are interesting. Um, Kate Neville says he wants to be the sole custodian of English magic. Kay Ben-Abraham says he'd like to be the gatekeeper of what magic means. And I think both of those metaphors, custodian and gatekeeper, um, are appropriate. He wants to... he. He wants to read it himself, and he wants to prevent anyone else from reading it, right? It, it is because of the potential potency uh, and, significant, and significance of the, of the king's book that he wants to make sure he gets his hands on it, because the magic of the Raven King, sort of the pure magic of the Raven King, cannot, should not, just be out there in circulation, right? Um, he does want to define it. John Moline says that he wants to regulate and define English magic. Um, absolutely good. Ellen Clegg... Uh, uh, <laughs> is Clegg really your last name? <laughs> so, my apologies, and it's not personal. <laughs> if, if that's your last name, I, I, I imagine that this chapter was a bit jarring, actually. Uh, but anyway... Um, uh, as, uh, as Ellen and and uh, and Kathy and Philip Menzies were all saying it, yeah, we can see him. Uh, we can see him really wanting to uh, um, to 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 prevent anybody else from uh, from learning uh, magic. Um, okay, so um, but again, it's not just to keep anybody from learning any magic. I mean, he he does want to control that, um, but he. Um, yeah, so Ellen, it, it, it is your last name. Wow, that's that's cool. And again, no, I, I, I hope <laughs> no offense, <laughs> nothing personal <laughs> about that. Uh, and that's uh, uh, I hope you don't feel defamed by this chapter. But anyhow, yeah. Um, so, um, Mister Norrell desires to redefine English magic. Right? He still wants to call it English magic. He calls it English magic. Right? Um, but he wants to clean it up. He can't... He, he, he would love to make everybody forget about the Raven King. He would like to expunge the Raven King from everyone's memory, from the history books, from everything else, right? He knows he can't really do that. So what's he trying to do? By controlling all of the books and only releasing very slowly his own version of things, um, he is trying to create an English magic, a purified, from his point of view, English magic. Right. Um, to not only say 
this is modern magic in the sense of from now forward, this is what English magic should be like. But it, but to to write it backwards, right? No, no, no. Here is what uh, you guys don't have the books. You don't know. I know, right? Here is what English magic really is. But as he does with Mister Strange in Jonathan's uh, education, right, where he removes certain books and doesn't tell him certain things, he's gonna he's gonna edit it, right? He's gonna expurgate English magic so that it doesn't include any of the things that he. Uh, that he himself disagrees with. Um, yeah, Sarah Lagarde says, Norrell wants Age of Reason magic, not medieval fairy-assisted magic. Yeah, essentially. I mean... Um, I'm not sure that that generalization always works, but it it's, works pretty well, I think. <laughs> Sarah King says the Raven King is not respectable enough for him. Um, yeah, that question about the respectability. Remember when we talked about how it's how magicians should rank among the professions, and he's always interested in how much respect he's getting. Um, I mean, you could say, I mean, Sarah, I mean, honestly, right? How much respect did the Raven King get? I mean, the Raven King got buckets of respect from everybody, right? Uh, you know, everybody in England, everybody in Fairy, everybody in Hell, right? I mean, he got he got he got plenty of respect, but not in Mister Norrell's terms, right? It was not respectable. Um, as we saw, you know, sort of in crisis there at the beginning when he first arrived in London. Um, more on uh, Vinculus's inheritance. Robert Findham was quite sure that the book was destroyed. That is plain. Nan told me Clegg had been hanged for stealing a book, but the charge Robert Findham brought against him was not theft. The charge Findham brought against him was book murder. Clegg was the last man in England to be hanged for book murder. So why does Vincius claim to have this book if his father ate it? said Lascelles in a, wo- in a wondering tone. The thing is not possible. Somehow, Robert Findhelm's inheritance has passed to Vinculus, but how it happened I do not pretend to understand, said Childermas. What of the man in Derbyshire? said Mr. Norrell suddenly. You said that Findhelm was sending the book to a man in Derbyshire. Childermas sighed. I passed through Derbyshire on my way back to London. I went to the village of Breton. Three houses and an inn high on a bleak hill. Whoever the man was that Clegg was sent to seek out, he is long dead. I could discover nothing there. Um, we get this sort of tantalizing hint here. Now, it's not confirmed what this is, but I think we are given enough information. Even before this is confirmed later in the book, we're given enough information here, I think, to... to figure out what happened here. Who is the man in Derbyshire? Well, we start with Robert Findhelm, right? Start with the fact that Robert Findhelm sent the book away. Why would Robert Findhelm send the book away? We were told how devoted he was to the protection of that book, right? Why would he ever let it out of his possession, let it out of his house? Um, The well, we know two things. A, he valued it higher than anything else that he had, and B, he couldn't read it, right? Um, so I think we can at least make a pretty good guess. Um, and notice again, Mr. Norrell is the one who interjects the question. Mr. Norrell has seemed to figure this out too. The man from Derbyshire is important, right? Because it's not just like, one day, when the book was traveling around, as it was wont to do, this is something that happened to it, right? That was an unusual thing. 
why, there's only one reason that he would send it away, and that is to bring it to a man who could read it, right? Um, and Mr. Norrell seems to have picked up on that, right? He's very interested in, in the man from Derbyshire, because if the man from Derbyshire is still alive, right, if there is a man in Derbyshire who can read the king's letters, Mr. Norrell must meet him, right? Mr. Norrell has to find that guy, because he had to have learned somewhere. Where did he learn? Does he have other books, right? Does he have, uh, you know, did, has he composed, a, you know, a grammar of, you know, of, of, the, of, of the king's writing, of the, of the king's letters? Um, that's, um, uh, that's, that's clearly where his mind is going here. Um, interesting. John, I had completely forgotten that. Now, both times I've read the book, I have missed that connection. John Moline is pointing out that, um, the dog who delivered the map to Stephen Black came from Derbyshire. And you will remember that the scrap of paper which the dog very patiently waited to deliver to Stephen Black was a map which showed a secret door in a hillside. Interesting. Interesting, John. Didn't make that connection at all. Um, could this be like the home address of the man from Derbyshire who knew the king's letters? Um, maybe. Maybe. Um yeah, now, uh, uh, Noam, I think that's a great point. Noam uh, Weiss points out that uh, the, the whole concept of book murder, right, implies that books of magic are alive in some sense, right? That the destruction, it's, because, I mean, to call it book murder, it's not just to, I mean, if all they meant by that was to say the destruction of a book of magic is as bad as killing a, a person, right? Well, then they would have just called it you know, book destruction, and pointed and, and sort of said, and the and the punishment for you know book destruction will be will be the same as that of murder. The fact that the crime itself is called you know it's 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 plainly characterized as the murder of the book does certainly uh, no at least sort of convey that impression. Uh, if it if not actually making uh, that actual logical claim. Um, Yes, there's something alive about these books. And, and no, isn't it interesting thinking about that in conjunction with the rest of what's being described here, right? That is to say that somehow, um, somehow, Robert Finhelm's inheritance has passed to Vinculus. Vinculus's father ate the book. He, 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 he destroyed it, committed book murder. He committed, like, cannibalism, <laughs> right? Um, but he committed book murder, he ate the book, and somehow the burden of Robert Finhelm, the inheritance of Robert Finhelm has passed to Vinculus. Um, when you sort of take that and you take that concept of book murder, the idea that the book is alive, right? Um, in some sense, alive. It's kind of, it's a very evocative question, right? How does that... I mean, it's... We know that it's not like... You know... We're not in a... We're not in a Greek myth here. You know, it's not like... Drunken Clegg... Sorry, Ellen, Ate the book, right? And then, like, Vinculus sprang forth from his head or something like that, right? It's not like the book is the parent... You know, the book and Clegg are the two parents of Vinculus. It's, you know, it's not like that, exactly. Um, and yet... There's some, um, 
there's some there's some connection. There's some living connection between the book which was murdered by Clegg and Vinculus. Um, <laughs> Phil Lord <laughs> says uh, that you know it makes you wonder if there's if there's if 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 you can plea bargain down to book slaughter. I I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Philip. I mean, yeah, do you get like a you know second degree book murder and uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, can you be you know? Can you get arrested for doing, you know, grievous bodily harm to a to a book? I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things, of course, that we need to think about in the context of like the book being alive is back to what the Raven King's perspective on writing, right? Uh, let me uh, let me actually look back at that for a second. Um, wait, sorry, wrong one, this one, okay. Mr. Norrell states the facts, A, that the Raven King was initially illiterate, and B, that not only was he illiterate, he was resistant to writing, right? Just sort of looked down upon writing. But then... Three that he later on that he invented his own written language, and then later on also learned Latin. So okay, but notice Mr. Norrell also gives his commentary upon this. Right, he was full of arrogance and pride. He had no wish to read other men's thoughts. Right, perhaps, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what motivated him uh, to just you know sort of arrogance and disdain were the only things which motivated the Raven King both to look down upon the writings of others and to uh, you know, be resistant to writing things down himself. But I'm not at all sure that... Um, I'm not at all sure that that's the only possible explanation. Um, uh, I think... Thinking of two things. Thinking of two ideas that are um, sort of presented to us by the Clegg story. One, the concept of book murder, and therefore the implication that a book of magic is alive in some sense and can be killed. And two, the fact that despite the destruction of the physical book, the inheritance has been passed on. Right? when Childermas went to do this research, everybody, presumably including Childermas, were under the impression that what he would be finding is the identity of Vinculus's book and how it physically came into his possession. But you'll remember Vinculus's riddling words. It's not necessarily that simple, right? Um, so, um, so we already had a reason to think there was something unusual about the sense in which he was the possessor of this book, right? Um, the book is alive and it has come down to Vinculus, despite the fact that its physical manifestation, the actual writing, the thing that the Raven King didn't really think much about, perished. Maybe, 
Mr. Norrell's commentary is inadequate. Was the Raven King arrogant? I have no doubt that he was. Um, I have no reason to think that someone who has risen from being a nameless slave to the king of three kingdoms by the time he's 15 will probably be arrogant. I, I, you know, I do not question this. But I don't think that that's the only way. Remember Mr. Norrell. This is Mr. Norrell we're talking about. If there's anybody who looks down on writing and books less than Mr. Norrell, I don't know who it is, right? Mr. Norrell reveres books and writing in themselves, right? So I don't think that Mr. Norrell can comprehend the point of view of somebody who, like the Raven King, comes at this from the outside. A, from a society that is fairy society in which writing is optional. Notice, even human, even in human society, writing was optional, as he, he acknowledges um, that, um, uh, and this is the sort of part that's sort of spanning these two. Um, when the Raven King first came to England, he could not read and write. Few people could in those days, even kings, right? This is one of my own, this is uh, on my list of uh, pet peeves of uh, ways in which modern people misunderstand the medieval world. Um, People assume that because the literacy rate, modern concept, because the literacy rate in the Middle Ages was so low, that means they were all ignorant and stupid. Right, and you because you can measure how in you know how 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 ignorant and stupid a society is by its literacy rate, right? Not in an oral culture you can't, right? So to say that is just to be pig-headed, is just to be fo- is to be to be coming so blindly from the perspective of a of a of, of a, a writing-oriented society that you can't imagine any other kind of society. There were other kinds of societies, and many people who were very sophisticated not at all ignorant, and who would actually look down upon it. I mean, famously, Aristotle disliked writing. Aristotle said uh, that, you know, he said writing is a, writing is a dangerous instrument because it will, it will lead to the, to, to the deterioration of memory, right? As soon as, like, this whole writing books thing became a thing, right? Aristotle's like, well, there goes memory, right? Now people are going to get all lazy and write stuff down so they don't have to remember it anymore, right? Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 there are, you know, there can be two opinions about literacy and, and about the effect of that. The Raven King was living within a human society in which literacy was not of primary importance, and he was coming up from a society in which literacy was unknown. Mr. Norrell knows these facts, but he doesn't actually sort of... He, he, he can't put himself inside that world. He is himself so thoroughly tied up in the written word that he can't imagine this, right? It must be an act of pure arrogance that leads the Raven King to reject writing. But maybe it's because the Raven King knows something Mr. Norrell doesn't know, right? And maybe that magical writing that he made up... Right? Maybe the king's letters, maybe the king's letters are more than just a different alphabet in which to write things down. An alternative to you know, I'm not going to Latin. I'm too good for Latin. I'm going to make my own language. Right? Sure. He, doubtless he was too good for Latin, and doubtless he was making his own language. But maybe there's more to it than that. Right? Maybe a book written in the king's letters does in fact have more life than merely ink on the page. And maybe, therefore, it didn't actually die when Clegg ate it. And that is how, somehow, 
magically, presumably, the inheritance of Robert Findhelm has passed down to Vinculus. Um, wait a second. Hey, Ellen, that means that Clegg is falsely accused, right? Clegg didn't murder the book. He just... The book had an apotheosis, right? Its physical, <laughs> its physical body was destroyed, but it could not be conquered. Okay, I can't really redeem Clegg. Uh, he's really not a redeemable character, but... Um, but uh, yeah, oh, Philip, that's really cool. Philip says yes. There's there are languages about magic and languages of magic, right? Yeah, that's a really fun distinction there, Philip. Yeah, yeah. Oh, at the very least, we can make a parallel to that, right? Um, yeah, I like. Hey, we we could do like an SAT analogy, right? Um, uh, Latin writing is to the king's letters as books about magic are to books of magic, right? That could work. That could work. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. See, Karina, exactly. The fact that you have to write down your shopping list or else you'll forget the milk and eggs is exactly what Aristotle was talking about. He would look at that and be like, see, see, I told you. Look at that. Look at how our, how the brain has atrophied, right? It's, it's horrible. It's just terrible. Um, anyway, okay, all right. Um, back to Mr. Norrell. Back to Mr. Nolan, and in a sense, what I want to do, I'm shifting gears here, shifting gears from talking about the King's Letters and the King's Book, but still talking about Mr. Norrell, and still focused on Mr. Norrell and the concept of English magic. This is uh, Strange talking to Norrell about his strange's going to the peninsula. Have you considered, sir, said Strange, the great respect that it will win for English magic? Oh, I dare say it might, said Mr. Norrell peevishly, but nothing is so likely to evoke the Raven King and all that wild, mischievous sort of magic as the sight of an English magician upon a battlefield. People will begin to think that we raise fairy spirits and consult with owls and bears, whereas it is my hope for English magic that it should be regarded as a quiet, respectable sort of profession. The sort of profession, in fact... But, sir, said Strange, hastily interrupting a speech he had heard a hundred times before, I shall have no company of fairy knights at my back, and there are other considerations which we would do very wrong to ignore. You and I have often lamented that we are continually asked to do the same sorts of magic over and over again. I dare say the exigencies of war will require me to do magic that I have not done before, and, as we have often observed to each other, sir, the practice of magic makes the theory so much easier to understand. But the two magicians were too different in temperament ever to come to an agreement upon such a point. Strange spoke of braving the danger in order to win glory for English magic. His language and metaphors were all drawn from games of chance and from war, and would scarcely and were scarce likely to find favor with Mr. Norrell. Mr. Norrell assured Mr. Strange that he would find war very disagreeable. One is often wet and cold upon a battlefield. You will like it a great deal less than you suppose. Okay. Um... Interesting. James Lebach says, yeah, Norrell, uh, sorry, he says, uh, so Norrell is not only picky about the kind of magic he wants to do, but about how, about the, the, the kind of respect that he wants as well. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, yes, and Karita uh, is still needling Mr. Norrell about his hypocrisy there. Yes, we can't have people thinking that we might raise fairy spirits. No, of course, we, don't, we wouldn't want that. Um, but, uh, 
the element here that I'm most interested in, I mean, of course, we can see Mr. Mr. <laughs> and I still remember that all, my favorite moment, really in the whole book, my favorite Mr. Norrell moment is the one where that, remember where that captain from the army who has all these romantic ideas about magic, you know, pictures the Raven King riding over a hill on horseback with a, an army of fairy knights behind him, right? And is so excited to meet Mr. Norrell. And then he meets Mr. Norrell and we get that description of him complaining that the cream in his tea was too creamy. Remember that? Um, I just you know so we can see the sort of the 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 peevishness and querulousness of Mr. Norrell's querulous is one of my favorite words um, querulousness of uh, of 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 Mr. Norrell's temperament uh, really shining through in, in a beautiful way here, um, but but the thing that I would emphasize is again back to the concept of English magic. So okay, think about what Mr. Norrell did, what he set out to do. Think about Mr. Norrell's first period of time in London. The time from his arrival in London through the time, you know, like just after the resurrection of, uh, of, uh, of, of Lady Paul, or the almost soon to be Lady Paul in this winter time. Um, what did he want? What was his goal? What was his plan to revive English magic? He's always called it that. That's what he's always... He, he still wants... He's still using the English magic trademark, right? To describe the thing that he's doing. He wants to differentiate it from traditional English magic, but he doesn't want to lose the name. He still wants it to be thought of as English magic. My question is, what claim, given how Mr. Norrell talks, what he does, what claim does Mr. Norrell have to consider his magic, English magic, under the circumstances? Do you see what I mean? That is what. What's English about it? Well, one of the things that I would emphasize, again thinking back to that early part of his career, is the argument that he made. That what does he want to do? Um, notice, remember, Drawlight is always trying to get him to perform at parties, right? Um, please just you know show the ladies some little something. You know, they're dying to see Mr. Norrell perform magic, and he's never done it, he never does do it. He has no interest in that. Um, and although Drawlight is sort of being... And again, we can see, as we talked about before, from Drawlight's reaction when Mr. Norrell starts talking about raising uh, Miss Wintertown from the dead, that he has no idea. Um, he has no idea that Mr. Norrell can actually do that kind of thing. He assumes Mr. Norrell can only do parlor tricks and, and that kind of thing, and that there must be you know powders and things like that involved. Remember, he, he he's sorry that he, that he didn't bring flash powder uh, to uh, uh, to 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 uh, Mrs. Wintertown's house right when they're going to do the resurrection. Um, so again, the question is, what claim does he have? What, what's his plan? What's his goal? Not Drawlight wants him to perform at parties which would be a good plan if his goal is merely to raise himself in the eyes of the people, right? He wants to show them magic. He wants them to believe that magic is possible, that being a practical magician is not like being a street charlatan. Well, he could do that if he just performed some magic in public, in polite parties, and, you know, it, which, you know, look, no yellow curtain, right? I mean, it would be easy. But that's not his goal. What does he do instead? What does he set out to do? What does he keep saying that he wants to do, not just to expose people to it, not just to teach them about it, not to publish about it. Publishing, is, he does do that, kind of, but it's not his idea, even, right? Those are not his goals. What is his goal? What does he want to do? Whom does he want to meet? What in does he want when he comes to London? 
Remember? Yes, Sarah, good. Sarah Lagarde says he wants to help the government, the British ministers and the government, right? He wants to show them... Uh, yes, as Carita says, he wants to meet the great men, right? He has no idea who they are, but whoever they are, he wants to meet them. Um, yes, he wants to be of use, as you say, exactly, to the great men. Um, he wants to make his... He claims a patriotic motivation, right? If his magic is not English magic in the traditional sense, if it is not demonstrably English in the sense of being like, hey, look, I'm like the second coming of the Raven King, right? You know, you can, like, would it help if I, uh, you know, if I, like, got a tattoo of a black bird on my forehead, right? Then it would be real English, right? You know, he, he, he far from that, right? He doesn't want to be associated backwards with English magic, but it still wants to be English magic. Why? Well, because it's going to be, it's good. he wants to help England in the war against France, right? It's the patriotism of his magic that he seems to hang a lot, you know, it's it is, remember how, uh, you know, uh, Napoleon is all off like trying to find a French magician um, who can help him counter the, you know, the English magic that is being brought against him, right? Um, Mr. Norrell... So again, there are kind of two things that I would want to draw from this. One is, again, trying to get inside Mr. Norrell's head. What does Mr. Norrell mean when he says English magic? He wants to distance himself from English magic in the Raven King sense, which is the definition of English magic. He wants to distance himself from that as much as possible. So why does he even call his magic English magic? What does he mean? The magic of England, right? Moving forward, right? Of of modern England, the support of modern. He wants he wants magic to be a pillar which supports modern England and is seen to support modern England, right? By being of use to the great men of the age. Um. But now look what happens, right? When push actually comes to shove. Yeah, good. Kate Neville makes a wonderful point. Um, she says, the Raven Kings had kingdoms and ruled despotically. Norrell aims to work with Parliament and the admirals of the Navy, right? Yeah, he's, he's, he's not going to... And it's one of the things, Kate, remember, that he disdains about the Raven King, right? You know, the Raven King came and, like, you can... You know, remember when he's listing, when he's telling Mr. Jonathan Strange about um, about why the Raven King is awful? Right? What is the first thing the Raven King did when he came to England? You know, uh, robbed the King of England of half of his realm and 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 proclaimed himself king. The fact that he he asserted power to himself by his magic—that's awful, right? You know, that's like all you need to know about the Raven King and why he's awful, right there, right? Um, so yes, Kate, his um, his approach is very different. Right? He wants to support England, not to sort of secede from England, which is almost like pretty much what the Kingdom of Northern England did, right? Um, but, um, yeah, exactly. Sarah King says uh, he is an Englishman, and the magic is for England. Maybe that's how he defines English magic. That seems to be, that seems to be pretty much it, or at least sort of something like that, right? Um, that's why I find this conversation so conspicuous. Is it? long explanation of this, but I think it's important. Um, when Jonathan Strange says, this is the perfect opportunity, right? I'll go to the war. And what English magic will be, you know, at the side of, 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 of Wellington, right? Um, 
that's um, that's a big deal, right? I mean, uh, Wellington is 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 the the centerpiece of Englishness, right? What could be more English magic-ish, right, in in Mr. Norrell's sense of the phrase, than to be right at the right hand of Wellington, um, who is, Carita, as you point out, a great man of the age, right? Um, what could be what could be more perfectly in line? What could be even even you could say the most perfect consummation of Mr. Norrell's plan to establish English magic than that? And yet, when it comes down to it, he's against it, right? Um, and his reasons are really bad. One is often wet and cold upon a battlefield. You will like it a great deal less than you suppose. Seriously? Seriously? His uh, reasons are so bad that either they're not his real reasons, or um, he's a much more despicable person than we had perhaps even believed before. I can't rule out the latter one. I mean, the whole, like, my cream and my tea is too creamy scene does suggest that, you know, uh, when push came to shit, if somebody asked him to go to war on behalf of England and, 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 you know, sort of fight alongside the Duke of Wellington with his magic, you know, I think he would refuse because just he would be, his own fear of battle and his own displeasure at discomfort and things would outweigh his patriotism when push came to shove. Um, but of course, at the same time, I think there is more than that as well. Um, yeah, that he, um, uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Janice Hopper says, remember that Noro is the man who thought the idea of a man hiding in a closet was a horrible nightmare to send to Bonaparte. Yes, yes, true. He is clearly a very, a very timid person. Um, anyway, but, um, uh, but Carita points out that we could be generous and say that perhaps he's afraid of, of Jonathan's dying. He does seem to value Jonathan very genuinely. Uh, I agree. I agree. Um, but, um, um, and Kate is wondering if it's a, a question of respectability, like a Navy versus Army respectability thing. I wouldn't think so, Kate. And the reason I wouldn't think so is that the Army is more respectable than the Navy. Being in the Navy is not even a profession. I mean, you know, it's not one of the four professions. Being in the Army is one of the four four professions. Being an officer, right? The men are the scum of the earth, right? As we learned, but um, but being an officer in the Army, that's very that's perfectly respectable. Um, you know, maybe not as respectable as the church, but it's it's in the category. Being a captain, I mean, any adventurer can join the Navy and rise to become a captain or an admiral um, from nothing and from nowhere. Um, so as far as social respectability goes, the army totally trumps the navy uh, in social respectability. Um, so I don't think that it's I don't think that it's that it's just that. But of course, one of the one of the biggest problems also, of course, is that you know I called the idea of you know the magician fighting at the side of of Wellington on the battlefield against Bonaparte to be the consu- arguably the consummation of uh, you know the sort of the perfection of Mr. Norrell's um goals except um except um it wouldn't be Mr. Norrell right it'd be it'd be uh, it'd be Jonathan Strange um yeah 
yeah, so that seems to be a big part of his uh, of his problem. But again, the fact that Mr. Norrell is so easy for whatever combination of reasons to turf patriotism aside, right? No matter how people try to appeal to him to say it's a patriotic necessity, if we're truly going to be English magic, then by golly, we've got to go and help England. He doesn't care. He's totally deaf to that. It's only when Drawlight and Lascelles work on his selfishness and miserly tendencies that he comes around to the idea. The idea that Strange, if Strange were still in England, he might, uh, he might uh, uh, um, uh, go against him in the book auction, right? Uh, that's that pushes him over the edge and says, "Okay, yeah, he should totally go to the peninsula." Um, Mister Norrell comes across really badly. Uh, in that whole sequence. And again, it, it to me, I can't help but think it really calls into question the sincerity. Again, if we have real old-fashioned English magic here and Mr. Norrell's English magic over here, it begins to make Mr. Norrell's version of English magic look like a really thin, pale thing in comparison to the original. It's not truly English magic, it seems, even in the sense in which Mr. Norrell is attempting to redefine English magic. Uh, he, of course, Mr. Norrell, I mean, gets pushed into a corner um, by uh, Strange in the issue uh, uh, of lending him books. It had never occurred to him before that Strange would need books in Portugal. The idea of 40 precious volumes being taken into a country in a state of war, where they might get burnt, blown up, drowned, or dusty, was almost too horrible to contemplate. Mr. Norrell did not know a great deal about war, but he suspected that soldiers are not generally your great respecters of books. They might put their dirty fingers on them. They might tear them. They might, horror of horrors, read them and try the spells. Could soldiers read? Mr. Norrell did not know. But with the fate of the entire continent at stake, and Lord Liverpool in the room, he realized how very difficult it would be, impossible in fact, to refuse to lend them. And this again just really puts into, uh, uh, into a, I think, a very clear light. Um, here we have, uh, you just think about that last sentence, right? With the fate of the entire continent at stake, and Lord Liverpool in the room... Patriotism, the actual genuine need of England on the one hand, and his quite selfish, miserly desire to hold on to his 40 books. Um, uh, yeah, and Chris Swank points out uh, these would probably even be second copies of titles. It's not even... Uh, Chris, I agree with you. There's no reason for us to suspect that Jonathan Strange was asking to have unique copies of these books, like it's going to actually be a loss to Mr. Norrell's, you know, a, a, a diminution of Mr. Norrell's own knowledge or own resources to send, if all 40 of these books were lost. Um, uh, that's, um, I agree, Chris, I think that that's an important clarification. That's not the, even the decision, he's, it's worse than that, right? Um, it is, so it's not, uh, if, because, see, Chris, if we could go there, right, if we could believe that the real decision that he's being forced to make is between patriotism on the one hand, the good of his country on the one hand, and his learning on the other hand, which you could generalize, in theory, to 
you know, the, the furtherance of magic, the cause of magic, the preservation of irreplaceable learning. If those two things were on the opposite sides of the scales, it would be much easier to be like, oh, you know, okay, like, he probably should send them, but I totally get where he's coming from, right? No, we don't have that freedom to give him that much credit, right? The only thing in the other pan of the scale, um, you know, against patriotism and the need of the country and the fate of the entire continent is Mr. Norrell's miserliness, his desire to prevent anybody else from ever seeing any of the books or to prevent any of the books from ever passing outside of his control. And it, again, it makes him look a good deal worse. And again, really suggests that when he talks about reviving English magic or restoring English magic, um, that in this sense he doesn't exactly mean it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Chris adds, still, if someone asked to take my fifth copy of The Hobbit into war, I'd totally be a Norrell. I get it. I mean, again, it's not that Mr. Norrell's point of view, like, we can't see his point of view at all, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 I get it. You know, the whole book murder thing resonates with me. Um, I'll never forget the first time somebody suggested, because, you know, and it was Chris, it was, I, I don't know, I remember if it was one of my Tolkien books or some other book I just happened to have multiple copies of. And uh, somebody, I think it was perhaps my mom, um, just sort of casually suggested, like, oh, you know, maybe we should, because uh, we were moving, as we moved a lot when I was a kid, and we were packing, you know, and so, of course, my mom was like, maybe you should, you know, get rid of, uh, you know, these extra copies, and, and she was like, gonna throw them away, just trash them. And I was like, book murder, right? I couldn't, and I still, to this day, have all of those copies over there on my shelf. Um, so I get, I, I get it too, Chris. I told it's not that he's, you know, in a way, there is still a kind of, like, potentially sort of endearing element in it, but again, it's, it's I think, very, um, very, uh, very emphatically outweighed, you know. And again, it's I think that these passages really conspire to show him, not just to show him in a negative light, but just to really emphasize the negative elements in Mr. Norrell's outlook, the sort of the hypocrisy inherent in his program, in what he's doing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so Philip Ward thinks it would only have been book slaughter, so it's it's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Oh, yeah. Philip is wondering, is saying he's surprised uh, that uh, uh, my wife has never managed to get rid of some of them. Well, Philip, I, I, I married uh, another book person, so we're. I mean, needless to say, my wife and I had many of the same books when we got married, and no, we've not gotten rid of any of our duplicate copies of the books that we both had uh, when we got married. It just enables us to. Uh, to keep uh, our books in different, you know, so we have different bookcases in the house with complete sets. Uh, it's nice. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Okay, uh, one last note on Mr. Norrell and sort of the, sort of this, this sort of new look at Mr. Norrell that we get, and this is from the very long footnote uh, that ends uh, this chapter that we've been discussing. But it was not Mr. Norrell's treatment of Mrs. Strange that drew unfavorable comment. In the weeks that followed the auction, scholars and historians wanted to hear what new knowledge was to be found in the seven wonderful books. In particular, they were in high hopes that the mirror of the life of Ralph Stokesy would provide answers to some of the most puzzling mysteries in English magic. 
It was commonly supposed that Mr. Norrell would reveal his new discoveries in the pages of the Friends of English Magic, or that he would cause copies of the books to be printed. He did neither of these things. One or two people wrote him letters, asking him specific questions. He did not reply. When letters appeared in the newspapers complaining of this behavior, he was most indignant. After all, he was simply acting as he, always, as he, he had always done, acquiring valuable books and then hiding them away where no man else could see them. The difference was that in the days when he was an unknown gentleman, no one had thought anything of it. But now the eyes of the world were upon him. His silence was wondered at, and people began to remember other occasions when Mr. Norrell had acted in a rude and arrogant manner. It becomes clear to everyone that whatever Mr. Norrell might say about his magic being for the good of England, um, his desire to re-establish English magic, you know, to re-establish magic for the good of everyone, his focus is not outward but inward, right? Um, that seems to be the conclusion that they all come to. So we can see, and I am willing to give Mr. Norrell enough credit to say that there's an actual tension there, that he does believe, or sort of his picture of himself, is that he is in fact furthering and enhancing and... Um, you know, sort of advancing English magic through his activities, but the the conflict there, um, the sort of irony of what he says he wants to do and how he actually acts um, becomes more and more plain to the public eye, and of course more and more insistently brought home to us. But let's shift to Jonathan Strange. So, um, Lord Wellington meets Strange for the first time. Lord Wellington gave Strange a sharp look. What I chiefly need is men. Can you make more? Men? Well, that depends on what your lordship means. It is an interesting question. To Strange's great discomfort, he found he sounded exactly like Mr. Norrell. Can you make more? interrupted his lordship. No. Can you make the bullets fly any quicker to strike the French? They fly very quickly as it is, but you, can you perhaps upturn the earth and move the stones to build my redoubts, lunettes, and other defensive works? No, my lord. But, my lord, the name of the chaplain to the headquarters is Mr. Briscoe. The name of the chief medical officer is Dr. McGregor. Should you decide to stay in Portugal, then I suggest you make yourself known to these gentlemen. Perhaps you may be of some use to them. You are none to me. Lord Wellington turned away and immediately shouted for someone named Thornton to get dinner ready. In this way, Strange was given to understand that the interview was at an end. Now, one thing that I find most remarkable about this um, uh, passage is Mr. Er, Mr. <coughs> I'm sorry, Lord Wellington... Imagine what Lord Wellington would say to me if I called him Mr. Um, what Lord Wellington uh, believes, sort of his context of English magic. We remember the highly romantic uh, captain from the army. Um, wasn't he a captain? I hope I'm not forgetting his rank. Then I'd be embarrassed again. Uh, but anyway, that, that, that highly romantic army gentleman who came and interviewed Mr. Norrell, which seems to have put the army off of magicians from the beginning there, um, and uh, he, we, we just see the the remarkable 180 degree contrast between Lord Wellington's concept of magic 
and that gentleman's concept of magic, right? That gentleman was all full of the idea of the Raven King. In fact, exactly the image that Mr. Norrell was afraid that people would have, right? Um, that guy had it. Lord Wellington doesn't have it at all. Um, why is that important? You know, why do I find that interesting? Well, I find that interesting because it's Lord Wellington. Remember, how are we introduced to Lord Wellington? What are we told about Lord Wellington? He is the epitome of Englishness, right? I love the footnote that points out that some, you know, pedantic people would point out that Lord Wellington was, in fact, Irish. But, uh, uh, but you know, the uh, dignified author won't even, won't even uh, uh, you know, sort of respect that with an answer. Uh, <laughs> just loved that footnote. But anyway, um, uh, Lord Wellington is the epitome of Englishness, and Mr. the Epitome of Englishness, excuse me, Lord the Epitome of Englishness doesn't, um, doesn't have any respect for magic, right? Doesn't even understand English magic, um, and has an enormous... So I just, what's amazing to me here is sort of the lack of imagination that Lord Wellington shows. He has heard about the things that the magicians have done for the Navy. Um, and rather than applying those, he, he, he doesn't go, you know, he, he is thinking purely in his own conventional and mundane terms. What I need is men, and I need those men to shoot their bullets at the French. So unless you can multiply my men, or somehow increase the quality of my bullets, or build my, my defensive redoubts for me, not interested. Uh, now, I, I, it seems pretty clear from what we see that uh, Strange could, at the very least, actually have done the last thing, perhaps. But um, um, but Mr. Strange isn't even given an opportunity to explain what he actually could do here. Um, uh, but again, sort of the closed-mindedness of Lord Wellington is, uh, is, is, is the thing that sort of fascinates me. Um, we have... In other words, we're given through Mr. <sighs> through Lord Wellington a, um, a a sort of third thing, right? We've had traditional English magic, Raven King English magic, and the I, that that idea which looms large in the imagination of most English people about magic. Remember, that's what Mr. Norrell fears about a magician going to war. Um, and we have Mr. Norrell's cleaned up, respectable, modern. Uh, uh, expurgated version of English magic. The third factor involved is those who are unromantic, right? Those who are like Lord Wellington, who don't really think about magic at all. We've seen people like this. I, 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 uh, Sir Walter Pohl was like this, right? Who gave no kind of respect um, to uh, uh, to English to magic at all, right? Um, seemed even to question the 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 veracity of traditional stories of English magic. Um, so it's very interesting. Good, Philip Lord was just recalling that same uh, that same thing. The initial meeting between uh, Sir Walter Pole uh, and Mr. Norrell. Yes, um, uh, exactly. Carita is teasing me for being so American and forgetting people's titles. I know. I'm sorry. I, uh, I, I, I'm totally, uh, totally yank in that respect, I suppose. But anyhow, um, um, but that's still an important factor that I think, and remember, it is primarily sort of in negotiation with those people that Mr. Norrell was sort of connecting himself, right? Um, 
he wants to correct the people who think about the Raven King, um, but he really wants to reach out and gain the respect of the people who don't have... So we see Strange in a similar kind of position. I think the parallel, Philip, that you're pointing out, the parallel between um, Strange's first meeting with Wellington and uh, Sir Walter Pohl, and Mr. Norrell's first meeting with Sir, Sir Walter Pohl, I think it's an important parallel. Um, and really even just to see sort of how they go about um, sort of making their uh, making their way. Now, John Moline points out that uh, Strange seems kind of out of character in this exchange. Literally, John, right? I mean, like, he's, he's suddenly, he even finds himself out of character. He's like, why am I suddenly talking like Mr. Norrell? Um, you know, he's acting like Mr. Norrell when Mr. Norrell is acting in ways that particularly annoy Strange, right? So he catches himself out of character. Uh, you know, John points out that he normally seems very intuitive and sort of improvisational, and he's not that here. John, my explanation for that, I, what I sort of take from this, he's so surprised by uh, by Wellington's response, right? That he just, uh, he never imagined that Lord Wellington would would um, um, would answer like this, um, would have this kind of point of view. Um, so that I think is that I think is sort of important, is sort of interesting. He has to establish English magic on a on a different sort of footing. Um, Notice, coming back to this, we can see this from sort of a different angle. When we overhear this conversation before uh, Strange, um, as Strange is coming into the room and he's hearing, overhearing them talking about magic, right? There was a little pause, and then another gentleman in a cavalry uniform said, We have been talking, arguing rather, about magic and how it is done. Strathclyde says that you and the other magician have given every word in the Bible a number, and you look for the words to make up the spell, and then you add the numbers together, and then you do something else, and then, that was not what I said, complained another person, presumably Strathclyde. You have not understood at all. I am afraid I have not, never done anything remotely resembling what you describe, said Strange. It seems rather complicated, and I do not think it would work. As to how I do magic, there are many, many procedures. As many, I dare say, as for making war. Now, by the way, what I want you to be noticing, uh, what I'd love to see some observations about, what do we learn about magic and about the actual practice of magic here, and what what conclusions can we draw from about their point of view, what, the officers of the army? What kind of ideas did they have about magic that they're sort of coming up with these particular theories? I should like to do magic, said the fox-haired, fox-faced gentleman at the other end of the table. I should have a ball every night with fairy music and fairy fireworks, and I would summon all the most beautiful women out of history to attend. Helen of Troy, Cleopatra, Lucretia Borgia, Maid Marian, and Madame Pompadour. I should bring them all here to dance with you fellows. And when the French appeared on the horizon, I should... I would just... You waved his arm vaguely. Do something, you know. And they would all fall down dead. Uh, the French, presumably, not Helen of Troy, Cleopatra, Lucretia Borgia, Maid Marian, and Madame Pompadour. Can a magician kill a man by magic? Lord Wellington asked Strange. Strange frowned. He seemed to dislike the question. I suppose a magician might, he admitted, but a gentleman never could. Um, what do you make of this? Right? And here I want to do I want to look at three things, because we get three different perspectives here, right? First, the arcane theory about how magic might probably work. Second, the fantasy about magic that the fox-haired, fox-faced gentleman has, right? And third, 
Lord Wellington's very pointed application question to Strange, right? What are the things that we learn from those things about their attitude, their perspective, their understanding of magic? Um, John uh, Kingdon, I completely agree. The gentleman with the thistle-down hair would approve of the fox-haired man's ambitions. Yes, John, I would be rather surprised if we... if uh, he had never met Helen of Troy, Cleopatra. You know, uh, there... It seems like there has to have been a dance party exactly like that. And it's a dance party, specifically, right? Exactly what we find uh, being arranged in Lost Hope all the time. Um... So, yeah, Neil Ottenstein was thinking the same thing. Um, And notice he's got it dead on, right? I should have a ball every night with fairy music and fairy fireworks. Um, And then what he describes, essentially, is fairy magic. And it's fairy magic. It's the kind of magic that fairies do, right? Let's conjure beautiful mortals and dance with them, right? Without, of course, consulting them first. And then, let's kill lots of people with magic. Hooray! Right? Excellent. Yeah. Um, that's interesting, right? Um, you know, there's no sense... I mean, we're not really given any reason to believe that he knows. I mean, the fact that he's... Um, the fact that he seems to be joking about this would seem to imply that he doesn't really have any idea um, of whether or not... Um, the uh, uh, this magic would actually work. Right? I don't think we can assume he's speaking from experience about fairies, though if he were speaking from experience, it wouldn't be uh, sort of any more startling, I think. You know, he, he couldn't have nailed it, I think, any better. Um, so, okay, so we have the one thing which is remarkably accurate fairy magic. Then what else? What else do we get? Um... Good. Yeah, uh, John Moline says that the, the Bible guess echoes occult numerology. Yeah, John, exactly. W- what we see, I think there are sort of two things I would kind of draw from that. One is the fact that the idea that the thing, you know, that's about as far from the fairy, I will wave my hands and this stuff will happen, right? But as far from that as you can get, right? It's a, a complicated, arcane system. Um, which has to be learned and sort of taught master to student, you know, and it's a mathematical system, right? Um, purely logical, purely, but also secret, also occult, also hidden. But based on the Bible as well, right? So there's something which could suggest a kind of spiritual authority to it, but more seems to be a kind of perversion of the Bible, right? I mean, it's not this is not relying upon the word of God. This is taking the word of God and manipulating it as a tool. Um, if anything, it sounds a little bit questionable. And so does the fairy magic of the fox-haired, fox-faced gentleman. Right? Um, that's much easier and much more fun to say than the gentleman with the thistle-down hair. Um, but anyway, um, it's uh, so both of them show or suggest that their concept of magic is at least, um, and here, John, I'm using your word, at least amoral, if not actively morally compromised. Um, And this all leads up then to Wellington's 
uh, very uh, um, Philip, Lord, as you say, purely practical question. Can a magician kill a man by magic? Right? Let's understand. Wellington, notice, he doesn't care at all about how it works. He just wants to know the most practical thing. He's a soldier, right? Could we use magic directly as a weapon? Right? Could magic be, you know, the atomic bomb of the of uh, of of the war with Napoleon Bonaparte? And what's the answer? K, as you say, as K, Ben Abraham says, magic does not contain moral strictures. Gentleman, gentlemanliness is the restraint, not magical limits. The answer is not no. Right? A magician might kill a man by magic, but a gentleman never could. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, well, so how does Strange do magic? It has nothing to do with, you know, mathematical procedures based upon biblical words. Um, it's not just waving your hand and having, you know, a whole army drop dead in front of you? How does it work? So let's look at the first example. Um, (laughs) Kat says, so magic doesn't kill people. People kill people. Uh, Exactly. Or at least, Kat, people refrain from killing people. Um, uh, Or, you know, certain people will refrain. But anyway, okay, sorry. I've gone too far. I'm talking about black magic yet. Okay, so this is remember this is the first time we see Strange doing any magic, and again, apart from the the visions in in uh, in liquid, it's not just water. Um, I think again, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we have seen any magician actually do magic on stage before, right? Um, before they're always uh, you know out of, we see the effects of it, but we never actually see it done. Um, so here's our first description of it. Strange glanced two or three times around the room in search of some magic to do. This is, of course, he's been put on the spot to do some magic. His glance fell upon a mirror that hung in the depths of a corner of the room where the light never penetrated. He placed English magic by Jeremy Tott upon the library table so that its reflection was clearly visible in the mirror. For some moments he stared at it and nothing happened. And then he made a curious gesture. He ran both hands through his hair, clasped the back of his neck, and stretched his shoulders, as a man will do who eases himself of the cramps. Then he smiled, and altogether looked exceedingly pleased with himself. Which was odd, because the book looked exactly as it had done before. Lascelles and Drawlight, who were both accustomed to seeing, or hearing about, Mr. Norrell's wonderful magic, were scarcely impressed by this. Indeed, it was a great deal less than a common conjurer might manage at a fairground. Lascelles opened his mouth, doubtless to say something scathing, but was forestalled by Mr. Norrell, suddenly crying out in a tone of wonder, "'But that is remarkable! That is truly my dear Mr. Strange! I never even heard of such magic before. It is not listed in Sutton Grove. I assure you, my dear sir, it is not in Sutton Grove!' What do we see here? What gets emphasized? Good. John Moline says we see him doing... When he does magic, he makes a gesture, and there seems clearly to be great internal exertion. Yes, John, the, 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 the phrase that I, too, would emphasize here was um, uh, 
as a man will do who eases himself of the cramps, right? He, he clasped the back of his neck and stretched his shoulders. Um, he looks like he's exerting himself, right? There seems to be some kind of effort that is definitely going into this, um, which is important, right? It's not just a technique. It's, you know, you know like the mathematical thing that the soldier was imagining. Um, it's, not just a, it's not just a brainy thing. It's not just I know the formula and so I do this. It's there's 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 work involved with it. It seems. Um, good. Kate Neville points out the act does not require words, or at least not words voiced aloud. Um, there are gestures and an instrument here, the mirror, and in other cases, water. Um, yes. Now remember, Mister Strange has said to the soldiers there are as many ways of doing magic as there are of of waging war. Right. That notice he's saying here you have your different professional methods, and I have my different professional methods. Notice how Strange is putting his own profession on a par with theirs, right? Um, in, a, in a kind of Norrell-esque fashion, really. But, um, uh, but, but, but yes, Kate, we do see those trends, right? Um, so one thing that is clear from that, magic does not require words. It is not essentially tied to words. Um, Kate, I would sort of add as a as a as a as a sort of uh, uh, Clarkian footnote to that, um, note that this suggests that you know that this reinforces um, the Raven King's resistance to or or his low opinion of writing. Right? It's not even really necessary. Um, good, good. Yeah, James Lubach has an interesting pair of observations. The magic is so subtle as to be only recognizable by another practitioner, he points out, and yet this is how he chose to demonstrate his prowess. Right? Notice, James, that Mr. Strange has been placed in exactly the position that Mr. Norrell has always refused to be in. Right? That is, to do a little piece of magic at a party, right, in a sitting room, in order to impress people. He has never done that. He's never agreed to do that. And he himself has asked Mr. Strange to do the same thing. So we can see... And, and, and James, it is interesting in that context that Mr. Strange responds by doing a very non-showy piece of magic. In fact, Lascelles and Drawlight can't even tell what has happened at all. Right? They don't even notice that magic has happened. But... But Norrell does. So it's clear that he has sort of chosen well. Um... Yeah, good, good. Um, what else? Good. Neil Ottenstein points out it's an intuitive exercise for Strange. Yes, by the the fact that it's not listed in Sutton Grove, which doubtless Strange has not read because he doesn't own a copy. Um, but anyway, it's not in the categories. He immediately remember the when the gentleman with the thistle down hair asks Mister Norrell who his master was. He doesn't say. No one was my master. I taught myself magic. He doesn't say that. He says, I learned it from books, right? The books were his master. Mr. Strange did not have a master, and he did not learn it from books. He is self-taught. Um, he's picked up what he can, but he is almost entirely self-taught. It is an intuitive exercise for Strange, and that is important. And that's what seems to impress Norrell so much. And it's, I think, pretty clearly the most endearing element of Mr. Norrell's character is his genuine fondness for Strange. Um, 
just at the moment where it would seem that all of those negative elements of, of Mr. Norrell's character should most pointedly lead him to um, uh, to react. I mean, he should be appalled and jealous and upset, right? Um, he should be declaring strange... You know, he should be setting out to destroy strange because here is clearly a rival. Having a rival is what he has feared most. And yet he embraces him, right? Um... Yeah, it's um, it's very remarkable in that way. Um, yes, and Janice, I also love the way that Strange actually gets rid of the book that Norrell gave to him. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, good, and Philip Lourdes is pointing out the same thing. He effectively destroyed a book. Yeah, no, so, Philip, I don't think that's even book slaughter, right? Uh, I mean, that's... Because uh, um, the book is still there. It's just in the mirror, right? I mean, you can't... Uh, can't reverse it and you can't get it back. But um but yeah, good, Kate. Norrell loves magic more than he fears any more than he fears anything else. It does seem to overcome his fears, overcome his his sort of uh, uh um uh insecurities and and uh, selfishness. Um he seems to be you know not unreservedly generously inclined towards strange, but genuinely generously and affectionately inclined towards Strange. There's still a very strong element of selfishness involved all the way through there. Um, but um, but I agree, Claudia, lovely is exactly what I would call it. It is lovely how excited he is that there's another magician on his level. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, John Moline is wondering where exactly that book ended up, right? That it was not... Uh, um, uh, Mirrors, of course, can be used as doors to descend the book to fairy. Um, that seems quite possible. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really cool, Janice. Janice points out, talks about how that particular piece of magic points out the difference between the two of them. Norrell values books for themselves. He would never, I mean, even if he tried to do the same magic, he wouldn't have used a book, right? He'd have used something else. Um, Nora really values books. Strange uses them as tools. That seems perfectly fair. Um, yeah, yeah. And Philip, I agree, it's one of the things that makes Nora such a difficult character to understand. Um, and just at the time where it seems like we are, you know, able to sort of peg him and peg him negatively, you know, we get his relationship with Jonathan Strange. Well, okay, having seen some of the stuff about the nature of magic and how magic works and all that kind of thing, let's go to the very controversial moment, which is going to, of course, be very important as we move forward. This black magic that Strange does with the raising of the Neapolitans. Strange told a man to fetch a sharp knife and a clean bandage. When the knife was brought, he took off his coat and rolled up the sleeve of his shirt. Then he began muttering to himself in Latin, he next made a long, deep cut in his arm, and when he had got a good strong spurt of blood, he let it splash over the heads of the corpses, taking care to anoint the eyes, tongue, and nostrils of each. After a moment, the first corpse roused itself. There was a horrible rasping sound as its dried-out lungs filled with air and its limbs shook in a way that was very dreadful to behold. Then one by one the corpses revived, and began to speak in a guttural language which contained a much higher proportion of screams than any language known to the onlookers. Even Wellington looked a little pale. Only Strange continued apparently without emotion. "'Dear God,' said Fitzroy Somerset, "'what language is that?' "'I believe it is one of the dialects of hell,' said Strange. "'Is it indeed?' said Somerset. "'Well, that is remarkable.' 
They have learnt it very quickly, said Lord Wellington. They have only been dead three days. He approved of people doing things promptly and in a businesslike fashion. One of my favorite sentences in the whole book. I love, I really like Lord Wellington. Uh, he approved of people doing things promptly and in a businesslike fashion. Uh, just absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, okay. So, I, and I admit, I included the business about the language of hell just so that I could read that last line. Um, but uh, what do we see about the magic? Again, what is interesting here, we don't just hear what he does, right? We actually see a description of how he does it. So the question, um, you know, when he gets back, we already read in today's reading, we already, you know, have heard the first of the rumors that Mr. Strange did black magic while he was in the continent. Um, which, of course, Mr. Norrell denies there's any possibility of. You know, Mr. Mr. Strange would never do that. When that rumor begins to go around, this is the first time that... I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember that phrase being used anywhere in the book to this book. Black magic, I mean. Right? We've had English magic and modern magic... But there's never been a question of white versus black magic. There's been old-fashioned versus modern, but there's not been white versus black. Who does black magic exactly? Now, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair does some horrible magic. I mean, he does... That is, he does horrible things to people with his magic. But here I'd come back, you know, Kay, as you were saying, it's not about magic, it's about his gentlemanliness, right? Um... When you see the kinds of things that the, that the gentleman with the thistle down hair does with magic, it's not, you know one d- does not I think necessarily draw conclusions about the kind of magic he is using, but the kind of person he is, right? Um, so the very idea of the distinction between black magic and Is white magic the opposite of black magic? I don't think that phrase, white magic, is ever used in the book, is it? I don't remember it ever being used. Um, Somebody has the Kindle version. Look that up. I don't don't know if that phrase, white magic, is ever used in the the book. Um, But what do we see? What do we see? Yeah, Karita says, I don't think we've gotten any description of black magic whatsoever. No, no, nor any sense. I mean... The traditional idea of black magic is that it is demonic in some sense. The conjuring up of demons, that's black magic, right? Um, I'm speaking traditionally here, but traditions outside of this book, I don't know if that's what I mean. Given that the Raven King had a kingdom on the far side of hell as well, and the, the, the... the relations, you know, the sort of the, the, the political landscape, as far as, uh, you know, England and hell are concerned, are rather different, uh, you know, in the world of this book. And so, even there, I'm kind of hesitant to draw rash conclusions. But, um, but since I don't think we ever anywhere get any kind of clear sense of this kind of magic is black magic, um, and, uh, and sort of, uh, um, and and you know and and is and is and is bad. Okay, John Moline says it does appear. Thanks, John. I know you had the uh, Kindle version. Let's see. Let's see if my page numbers are the same. Can you give me the context? Can you give me the sentence. Um. 
Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm getting. Anyway, quote for me the sentence, John. Um, what should be called white magic and what black? Okay, so it is used explicitly as uh, as the opposite of black magic. Well, that's good anyway, so we know the terminology. Not that we know the distinction between those two things, I think. But um, uh, but uh, but anyway, yeah, so okay. I think our best crack at defining what black magic is, is looking at this scene. Not that it helps that much, because the question is never really answered. Um... Is this thing that Jonathan does, is this black magic? Would this count, in fact, as black magic? We see how reluctant Strange is to do it, right? That would suggest that he... And also we see how worried he is that people back in England are going to hear about this and believe it, right? Um, there is a little bit of... Um, of um, uh, uh, sort of public response that he's concerned about. So it does suggest that uh, he is... um, He does think that this is shady, in some sense. Um, But... Okay, what do we get? What do we see? In actually looking at this, let's do a a close close reading of this. Um, James Lubach points out that there are two major features here, blood and Latin. Yes, he's muttering in Latin, and he uses blood, his own blood. Um, James goes on to say, The anointing of the corpses with blood seems like a perversion of last rites. Uh, Latin is interesting because it's the church's language. Um, yeah, it is kind of interesting. The last rites thing is is interesting, uh, James, I agree. It's almost like a, a kind of a perversion of communion and last rites, right? Um, uh, that is, I'm the communion. I'm thinking of like you know the, the blood being upon them. There's also something, um, something almost Passover-like about it, right? Like taking the blood of the the blood of the lamb and and putting it in the you know the, the post and lintel of the door, right? Um, I almost like that. I mean, this it's 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 uh, the the ritual that he does. Um, and I'll make sure I'm I'm getting it uh, correct here. What does he do? Okay, taking care to anoint the eyes, tongue, and nostrils of each. Yeah, uh, both Kate uh, Neville and James are saying it's it's like a kind of anti-baptism uh, almost. Um, and John, yeah, I'm also thinking in it. I mean, it does seem to rely upon the, the the concept of equating blood and life, which is another. I mean, so I I keep going back to a bunch of these sort of Old Testament things, right? Um, so, yeah, and it, Philip, yeah, the connection with the blood is why I was thinking of communion also there. So what do we make of this? The f- fact that, again, the Latin chanting combined with these things, which are, this these acts which are uncomfortably like several Christian sacraments, but very significantly different from all of them, right? Um... It's not the blood of Christ, it's Strange's own blood, it's uh, not last rites, it's like the reverse, right? It's, it's, it is, um, uh, you know, James used the phrase an anti-baptism, it's the anti that's really uncomfortable about that, right? And makes it seem more black magic-ish, right? Anything which is a, which could be taken as a sort of a demonic perversion of a holy thing or a sacrament, that's 
classic, you know, like saying the Lord's Prayer backwards kind of thing, right? I mean, that, that's, that's, that's classic black magic stuff right there. Um, so, you know, that looks, um, um, that looks questionable, right? Um, now, Donna asks the really interesting question. Could black magic also refer to the Raven King's magic, since the Raven King is also known as the Black King? Yeah, blackness is associated with the Raven King, right? Um, uh, yeah, now, Noam Weiss points out that he doesn't think that the spell that uh, that Strange does here is the Raven King's kind of magic, um, since the Raven King himself wasn't Christian. Perhaps, though... Noam, you might also make that use that same argument that is the unchristianity or non-Christianity of of the Raven King um, to say that he would perform this kind of magic because he wouldn't care, right? Um, uh, I mean, you know, to him, hell is um, the kingdom next door, <laughs> right? To one of his three kingdoms, so he would have a, a different viewpoint and presumably wouldn't be bothered by. Um, by a sort of sacrilegious ceremony, um, or even a ceremony that invoked demons. Again, demons would just be those guys next door, right? Um, would be the neighbors, um, and not necessarily a big deal. I mean, so long as, presumably, so long as he maintained authority over them, like he apparently enjoyed maintaining authority over everybody, humans, fairies, um, whatever, um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Kate Neville points out, wouldn't the Raven King just be able to travel over to hell and talk to the soldiers? Well, remember, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair uh, suggested that he would just make a jaunt down into hell to uh, do something really unpleasant to William Pole, right? Um, to uh, avenge the insult done to Stephen Black. Um, but... Um, Anyway, I think it's pretty safe to say that the magic that Strange does here at least will look like black magic, whether that... The fact that that category never gets defined and is very seldom used uh, throughout the book, uh, it never comes becomes a point of discussion, exactly. Again, not like traditional English magic, and, you know, we never get the the dichotomy between white magic and black magic is never as present in the mind of the reader as the dichotomy between traditional english magic raven king magic and modern magic mr norrell's magic right that that's the sort of the real divide that's the real vocabulary of the book black magic versus white magic it's present it comes up but it's not the fundamental vocabulary of this book clearly not the fundamental vocabulary not what everybody's interested in um and yet it does exist as a concept, um, and um, I am wondering where does it exist as a concept? That is, thinking back to some of the comments that you guys were just making about the Raven King, I doubt the Raven King would make that distinction between black magic and white magic, especially not pejoratively towards black magic and complementarily towards white magic. He's the black king, right? As you said. Um, so, 
Um, if other people were making that distinction, I, I kind of doubt the Raven King would care. That doesn't seem to come from him. This doesn't seem to come from magic in, its, uh, in itself. It would seem instead to come from the outside, to come from sort of a non-magician point of view, even a kind of, uh, you know, sort of ignorance, right? That people who know nothing about magic, um, but are concerned about the, you know, the, the, the moral goodness, or again, they don't know anything about how magic works, so they sort of fear, like, wait, but does doing magic mean summoning up demons, right? Um, they would be worried about black magic versus white magic. Um, I think there is some evidence, and we'll come back to this next time, I think that there is some evidence that... Um, I think that there's some evidence that the distinction is not a real distinction. That it is only a public opinion distinction. It's, it's, those are categories that exist only in the mind of uneducated, unmagical people. Um, and, but then you can say, but wait a second, then why was Jonathan Strange so reluctant to do this? Well, I think he was so reluctant to... I think, I don't think it, one has to apply the, uh, the category of, you know, or you know, to say, like, he knows that this is black magic and therefore evil, and so he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to cross that line. I don't know that necessarily we have to believe that of Jonathan in order to understand his being reluctant. I mean, surely the fact that what he's doing is distasteful by anybody's standards. Remember he how he made a big deal about the mutilation of the bodies, right? I mean, you don't he he didn't he wanted them not to be molested. Um and he was really upset when he found that the bodies had been looted and their fingers cut off and teeth ripped out and all these kinds of things, right? All these trophies had been taken from them. And he was asked, does it make a difference for the magic? And he admitted, "No, but I have to look at them." Right? It's distasteful in that sense. Um, calling up, you know, reanimating these corpses is horrible. And they make his life miserable thereafter because he doesn't know how to put them down again. Right? So he has these 17 zombies uh, clamoring around him and begging for a release which he can't give them. Which he, which he can't give them. Who would want that? Right? Who wouldn't be reluctant to create that situation? Um, it's awful. It's it's the, you know the situation. The, the the whole thing is quite dreadful. Whether or not there's any public stigma to it, whether or not anyone's going to be like oh, a clearly documented case of black magic. Oh, Mister Strange is evil, right? He doesn't have to be worrying about that line of reasoning necessarily, or he doesn't. Rather, he doesn't have to be participating in that line of reasoning himself. Um. Uh, you know, this is not like, and this is the first step over to the dark side, right? I, I don't necessarily think that Mr. Strange has to be thinking in that way. But there is a public opinion angle with it, right? Um, that he does... I th he is clearly concerned afterwards that people are going to talk about this and that the people who do, the perhaps comparatively ignorant people who do make an important distinction between black magic and white magic, that they're going to um, they're going to be upset. They're going to be... That his uh, standing, his reputation is going to 
to really suffer. Uh, that people are going to look at him. She, yes, exactly. Kate Neville says, a gentleman doesn't call up corpses. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, a, a magician might reanimate a corpse, but a gentleman never could, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, very good. Um, well... I've got right. I've gotten right up to my uh, passage. I really wanted to get to, which is the cure, uh, the attempt to cure the King of England of his madness. But I have several passages I want to talk about there, and I don't think I want to rush it. Um, I've done that before, but I don't want to do that again. So I think I'll save that. We'll start well. I'll probably start with that next time, but I'll definitely get to it next time. Um, uh, and <laughs> thank you, Sarah Lagarde says that that was always a stretch goal. Th- thank thank you, Sarah. Yeah, it's 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 fine. It's fine. Um, anyway, so we'll do that next time. We'll definitely do that. Um, I want to come back to you know we've gotten scenes with Stephen Black and the gentleman with the thistle down hair. Um, uh, I want to I want to come back to some of those things and and definitely be. I, I don't want to be forgetting Stephen Black uh, as we go through, but. Uh, um, next time, so next time, class number six, we're going to finish part two, so through the end of the Jonathan Strange section, um, and uh, I, uh, I look forward to talking again next week. Don't forget, this week, if you get a chance, watch the episode Blink of Doctor Who, so we can be all ready to talk about that next Thursday night. If you forget until next week, when I'll remind you again, you'll only have one day uh, to do it, so, uh, uh, so, uh, so don't forget. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. This was a lot of fun, and I will see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye now.